Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations, learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think, Pair, Share with me, Audrey Scott. Kate Shanky Lucian is the Director for Haiti and Senior Associate Director for Strategic Planning in the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child at the University of Notre Dame. Since 2012, she and her team have implemented education programs in Haiti focused on early grade literacy, social-emotional learning, early childhood development, and community engagement. Kate is an avid proponent for Chicago's vibrant Pilsen neighborhood and its treasured St. Procopius School. Her engaging laugh is earned, and I'm so pleased to welcome her to Think Pair Share today. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's always good to see you on the campus, but I know that you live in Chicago and and are certainly often in Haiti. I used to live in Chicago too, and I just love the Pilsen area. Yeah, we live in Pilsen and my kids go to St. Procopius, which is a dual language immersion school there on 18th Street. We've got plant shops, bookstores. It's a hipster's paradise. It's a really fun, vibrant neighborhood, and we just enjoy it. How did you guys land in Pilsen? My husband started grad school at University of Illinois, Chicago, when I started grad school at the University of Notre Dame um, back in 2005. And so as he was about to move um, from Haiti to Chicago, he said, I guess I got to find an apartment. And so I said, well, I'll go look at a couple for you. And that's how we ended up in Pilsen. I went into the UIC graduate school office and I said, what's a reasonably priced neighborhood really close to here? And they said, well, Pilsen's probably your best bet. And you know what? It's been great. We love it there. I just love that. And you're right. Um, I just think that there's there's such vibrancy to the neighborhood um, and to the people who live there. So that's awesome. As uh, is our tradition here, um, we start out with a little bit of a fun section, which okay. um, your lucky theme in a very hot July is summer fun time. Like it or not, here it's coming at you. Audrey, I'm ready. Game face. I'm going to answer okay. all I'm your gonna, questions. Okay. Be good. I'm going to be good. You're going to be excellent. Um, I can tell that already. If you have to pick one section, um, okay. how about hamburgers or impossible burgers? Hamburgers. Impossible uh, burgers are the vegetarian ones, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think I would just go uh, with regular hamburgers, probably. Maybe I'll evolve um, someday and I'll be into the impossible burgers, but for now it would be regular hamburgers. Yes. I just wasn't sure if you were vegetarian, so I didn't want to put only meat options. I'm an aspirational vegetarian. Like I go in fits and spurts. So I got to be honest, it would be, I would probably pick the hamburger. Fair enough. um, Then maybe I'll say hot dogs or brats. Oh, brats. I'm from Wisconsin. So it has to be brats with sauerkraut on them. You have to have the sauerkraut. Okay. But you're not going in for a Chicago dog. No, people in Chicago are so funny about their, I like a Chicago dog. But I also don't like people being so militant about ketchup because uh, I feel like every time my kids get a hot dog in Chicago, they want ketchup because kids always want ketchup and they always get like dirty looks. And I'm like, OK, well, just just ketchup. So, no, I like a Chicago dog. But if I'm choosing, I'm taking a bratwurst, preferably one that's been simmered in beer for a long time before it's been put on the grill and then topped with sauerkraut. That's my jam. That sounds good, actually. OK, great. Lemonade or iced tea? Lemonade. Watermelon or cantaloupe? 
watermelon. Me too. I love watermelon. Even if it's a, a not awesome watermelon, if you put a little salt on it, it's going to taste amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. A woman after my own heart. Um, <laughs> cotton candy or elephant ears? Elephant ears. I don't, I'm not a cotton candy. I, even as a kid, I don't think I was ever, it looks amazing, but it's, it never lives up to my expectations. So no. And it, it's so sticky and, and messy. So yes, elephant ears for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Anything that's got cinnamon in it. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm a big fan of anything that's got cinnamon in it. So yeah, that's great. Yep. Okay. Multiple choice for a couple of little summer fun facts. The dog days of summer are named after Toto from the Wizard of Oz, Sirius, the dog star constellation or Nipper, the RCA dog. B, I don't even remember what B is, but I'm just going to go with B because I don't know the answer. And I think I remember you're always supposed to go with the middle choice if you get multiple choice. <laughs> In this case, you're absolutely right. No matter what you're- It worked. My strategy worked. <laughs> I love your strategy. I would not stick with it though. Insider haven't tip. Read, haven't you ever read though that like um, if you're taking a standardized test and you're running out of time, you're supposed to, and you're really not even going to look at them, you're supposed to just pick the same letter all the way through. Maybe this is wrong. I don't know. I no. work with a lot of educators, so I should ask them if that is true, but- Someone can tell us, Audrey. Someone oh. can investigate that and tell us if that is. Let's have the summer interns work on it. The, yeah. For... What was B? B? B was Sirius, the dog star, which rises in the sky during late July as part of the greater dog constellation, according to National Geographic. Okay. Um, and to the Legit Greeks source. and Romans. Yeah, that's a very good source. To the Greeks and Romans, the dog days indicated the hottest time of year. So a little history lesson along oh, with it. Well, there you go. <laughs> if I'm ever on Jeopardy, that's going to come in really handy. Um, I like it. And um, I'm just going to say free for all on this last one, depending on your strategy. Um, the very okay. first Frisbee, the very first Frisbee, now a summer classic, was a, an empty pie tin, a vinyl record, or a hubcap? Empty pie tin? Yay! <gasps> I'm two for two. Yes. Wow. <laughs> the Frisbee began in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where William Frisbee opened the Frisbee Pie Company in 1871. But university students would play with the empty pie tins, which prompted them to call them flying saucers um, and then organize them into a game that ended up being produced and played and is kind of now a competitive sport. So one that I'm that I'm very poor at. I cannot for the life of me throw a frisbee with any sense of clarity on where it's going to land. Like I can throw it hard, but I have no idea where it's going to end up. There's just no telling. Oh, oh my gosh. Love it. Okay, one more for personal choice. A vacation in general, would you pick beach or ski or? So to be very honest, I like cold weather more than I like hot weather, but I would pick whichever vacation spot was going to allow me the most time to read. I can read on a beach. I can read in a ski lodge. I, I can read anywhere. So I'm always carrying a lot of books around. Yeah. So you, I assume you're a good reader. You know, I am. I think the word I would use is probably voracious. Um, oh. I love to read. I still remember um, I learned to read sort of by osmosis at a really young age. I went to a Montessori preschool and I remember one day I said, oh, I think I can read this book. And they said, can you? And I remember the book. It was Margaret Wise Brown's Home for a Bunny. And I remember very specifically, I was four and I read this book and they said, well, maybe you just memorized that book. And so they kept handing me books and I kept reading them. And they were like, how did you learn how to read? I'm like, I don't know, but I love this. Like, this is all I want to do. So I was kind of famous as a kid for sneaking books everywhere. Um, my parents had rules about um, 
how long, like if I wanted to purchase a book, it had to be really long because otherwise I would finish it really fast because I just couldn't be stopped. Like you could not stop me from reading. I would get go up and climb trees and read in trees. I would try to read at the dinner table. I would sneak books into church, read them behind the bulletin. I would try to sneak it in. Like I've just always been that way that that is like my, I, I don't know. I've just always been a really intense reader. And I think in particular during the pandemic, reading was really like a great escape. I was like, things are really stressful. Like reading is going to be really soothing. It's going to kind of, yeah. um, anyways, I got into a, a habit that I had fallen out a bit of with kids and grad school and work of reading every night. So I think um, actually every night, that's kind of my nightly routine as I I read for like an hour, an hour and a half. Um Every night, it's kind of like, I, if I don't do it, I feel a little bit bereft. I feel a little bit lost. So oh, wow. yes, I do. I really enjoy reading. It's really yeah. important to me. That's great. And I'm guessing that, you're, that your husband and kids actually know that and love that about you and probably have ways of you know, giving you that space, I hope. Yeah, it's true. Well, I do it. You know what I found is that I have to do it at night. Like my, um, I have a six-year-old who she wants to lay on my arm to fall asleep. So my routine is that we both get ready for bed at the same time. And I have a Kindle, which is a great gift to me because uh, between the public library, eBooks and my Kindle. So anyways, she falls asleep on my arm and I read for, you know, hour and a half until I fall asleep too. So we have a really great nightly routine. We've been doing that for a couple of years now. And it's been just, oh. just a lovely routine. That sounds delightful. Did your parents read to you all the time? You know, I used to sit with my dad. He would, I would always sit in his lap when he would read the newspaper. And I do remember I would ask questions. And obviously at Montessori, I think I was learning about, you know, a Montessori approach. They allow you to kind of explore or do things at your own pace. So I'm, I think I was exploring. They just didn't realize maybe that I was putting it all together. And I will tell you that my, um, so I went to that Montessori preschool and then I was supposed to go to kindergarten after that obviously the next progression at the public school. And my brother had gone to kindergarten. He's three years older than me. And all he told me about was how amazing kindergarten was. Kindergarten's so much fun. They don't treat you like a baby. You get to do all this fun stuff. I'm from a small town and my one of my mom's dear friends was the kindergarten teacher. So I was also really excited to have Mrs. Hoffman. And I remember getting to kindergarten on the first day and they did some sort of a, a test or something. I can't remember. And I remember the kindergarten teacher saying, I'm really sorry, but you have to go to first grade. And I was oh. distraught. I was like, why? And she's like, if you can read, you can't stay in kindergarten. And so, so I went to first grade. It all worked out. I just... <laughs> I just love, I don't know. I just, it sounds like that you find a joy in reading. Yeah. I would say that it's, um, it's almost be, I think for honestly, my whole life, stepping back a second, I grew up in a very small town in Northern Wisconsin. And so for me, from a very young age, reading was a way to explore the broader world. It, it you know, I, I loved where I grew up. I grew up in the, the middle of the woods on a lake in this small, beautiful town surrounded by nature. All of that was wonderful. And I wouldn't change it for anything. But reading was a way to kind of, um, this was pre-internet. We only got, uh, when I was growing up, we only got two TV stations, NBC and PBS. So I had some, but you know, it's not like that was, a, um, we didn't have cable or, or anything like that. And so reading was a way for me to explore things I was interested in, read about other people's lives, get those different experiences. I just remember the public library being like a magical place for me. I love the way it smelled. I would go into the library and I would just want to like, oh, I just still to this day remember how the library smelled when I was a kid and just the excitement of picking out new books and the librarians who knew me and would set aside things. So yeah, I think for me, it was um, 
I've just always taken such um, just deep joy in it. And you might have noticed, Audrey, I'm, and other people, if they know me, would know I'm kind of an extrovert, which is true. I can't <laughs> deny I'm definitely an extrovert. But I think that may be honestly part of why I find reading so centering and so soothing. It's a it's an activity where I, I I quiet down and I sort of retreat into myself a little bit and I really get into someone else's world in a in a more passive way, uh, for lack of a better word. And that is just very, I don't know, very centering for me. Yeah, I just take so much joy in it. It's just a really big part of my life now that I think about it. Well, that's wonderful. And I know that actually, I think I'm probably going to be skipping ahead pretty far, but, but part of your work includes the value of literacy and... Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you tie those together? We can certainly get into yeah. some of that in a, in a bit, but do you tie those together? Absolutely. I mean, I just think about having access to books again to broaden my world. I think about the kids that we serve. I mean, particularly, um, I work and serve schools and families in in Haiti, and there's a real lack of access to resources, to materials. Does the school itself even have a library? Very often not. And do kids have books at home that they're able to explore and read and enjoy? They don't. I would say that animates my passion for this work. There's one element of reading for pleasure, and I think that's extremely important. Opening you up to the world and your value and dignity as a human being who deserves to just be able to explore and and have different types of experiences. There's that. It's almost like a human flourishing, um, almost from like an artistic or like a, a, a human level. And then there's just a very practical level where reading is extremely important so that when you go to the bank, you understand if you're signing something when you sign a bank document or mm-hmm. people can't take advantage of you if you're signing a land contract or, yeah. you know, you would know, you would be able to read and understand. So I think that there is like an element element of beauty in in reading and and um just opening yourself up to the world and those beautiful you know new experiences and then there's also just a practical aspect to reading and, and so I think it's both for me that's like my motivation mm-hmm. I just want people to have access to be able to read so that they have not only the ability to experience deep pleasure from reading but to also have control of their own lives oh my gosh that's wonderful yep both excellent I always like to sort of ground people and how they came to Notre Dame or their path to Notre Dame. I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. So I went to Wheaton College for undergrad, then lived in Haiti for a year. I taught at a Haitian elementary school uh, for a year and then went to Tulane to do my master's degree in Latin American studies. And while I was at Tulane, I decided... I'll be very honest with you. I was like, well, I know how to do graduate school. I keep school is, I I know how to keep doing school. So maybe I'll keep applying to to school. And I applied um, at a couple of places, but Notre Dame was my top choice to do a PhD in political science. So I came to Notre Dame with the idea that, um, again, that I would um, do my PhD and that my focus would be on um, Latin America and the Caribbean and Haiti in particular within the field of comparative politics. So that's how I came to Notre Dame. And actually, my very first political science course at Notre Dame as a graduate student back in 2005 was on political parties, and it was being co-taught by Tim Scully. So I walked into the classroom, and I was there a little bit early. There weren't that many students, and Tim was there, and he was dressed in his blacks. Now I know that they're called blacks. I didn't know that at the time. So I sit down, and I'm trying to make conversation, and I say, oh, you know, um, 
Tim, he said, oh, please, you know, please, everybody call me Tim. I said, you know, Tim, never been in the same room as a priest before. I was raised Protestant. I was not raised Catholic. And I literally never been in the same room as a, a priest before. And he said, oh, you've never been around a priest before, in a room with a priest. I said, no. I said, I've never even seen a priest in his priest outfit. And he laughed really hard and he patted me on the hand and he said, I just love that you called it a priest outfit. I really think you and I are going to be friends. And I'll be honest, we were from that point on, I was a research assistant for him. He wrote books about Latin America and, and politics. So after the earthquake in 2010, ACE really expanded its footprint because of their relationship with Holy Cross in Haiti, the prevalence of Catholic schools. ACE really made a commitment and had donor support to work to improve the quality of education in Haiti. And because I had done research for him um, with different books on Haiti and um, all of that, and he knew that I spoke Creole, uh, Tim graciously invited me to kind of be part of, of that work. And so that's how I came to ACE and IEI. That's wonderful. Uh, Follow-up question, if I could. Yeah. I'd love to hear your passion for Haiti. You, you work a lot there and, and sort of what sparked that? My family, my uh, I grew up in the Evangelical Free Church. That's the denomination I grew up in. And my parents had been really involved in working in different service areas within the Evangelical Free Church. And one of those was in Haiti. So my parents had been to Haiti several times. I had not been to Haiti as a child, but my my parents had gone and, and done different work. My mom was a teacher. She was a special education teacher and really had a heart um, for kids and particularly disadvantaged kids. And so, um, yeah. So uh, my mom was a, a teacher and as I mentioned, a special education teacher. And uh, when I was 19, I was in a very bad car accident and my mom was killed uh, in the car accident. And so part of the gifts from all of her memorial, uh, what we asked for in our family was that all the gifts from her memorial would go to finish, uh, to complete a school that she and my dad had been helping to start in, in Capetian, Haiti. And so when I graduated from college, that's why I went to Haiti the year after I graduated was because of all the gifts that had been had been made, sorry, had been made in my mom's name, um, the community decided that they wanted to name the school after my mom. So the school, it's still there. It serves a thousand kids in Capation. Um, it's called College uh, College Susan Shanky. And so I decided to go and to um, serve and to teach in that school um, for that year. So that really was, so it was kind of directed for me in, in a way um, that my path would be drawn towards Haiti and um, in particularly to education in Haiti. So that's why, you know, since I've been um, uh, 19, that's been something that's been important uh, to me, to our family um, and something that we've been pretty committed to. So I'll be very honest. I felt incredibly, I, I, I'll tell this story. Um, it was after the 2010 earthquake and I was, I had just had my son. I was on a leave of absence from graduate school because I had just uh, given birth in October to my son, Sebastian, um, who's almost 13 now. And I just remember watching all of that coverage in Haiti. Um, just of, I, I'm sure you remember it, right? Just the, yes. just the, the total. Um, and I remember just sitting there and, and, and holding my son and thinking, Oh, I would do anything to protect him. And I just thought about all of those families that were struggling, that couldn't take care of, couldn't provide medical services for their, their children, just the injuries, just all of that. And I think um, maybe that was a bit of a turning point for me. I had been on kind of an, um, maybe an academic track. 
I was on track to say, okay, just school is the thing that I'm good at and I'll just keep, kind of keep doing it. I'm going to get my PhD and then I want to be a professor. And I honestly think that was a pivotal moment for me to say, what, what do I want to do? It's, it's not that I don't like, it's not that I don't want to finish my PhD or it's not that I don't care about these things, but there's just so much hurt in the world. There's so much that's happening. I would just really like to be a part of some of those solutions. So I'll be very honest when that opportunity was presented to me um, by Tim to come and to kind of come alongside and help with these efforts, I was very open to it, right? I felt like that was the timing, that was um, the moment, and that was really the kind of thing I wanted to spend uh, my life pursuing. Well, I can think of no um, finer reasons to, <laughs> to do the work that you're doing and, and specifically there. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. It's beautiful. <laughs> Something tells me she'd be lots of smiling down on, on you and the, and the work that you guys are doing. No, I think, I think that all the time that, um, you know, it's funny because um, it's very interesting to be, it's, it's been almost, it's been over 20 years um, since my mom died. And, you know, I, I miss her in different ways at different moments but there is something, I was just talking to another friend of mine who lost her mom um, when she was younger as well. And we, as we're moms now, we were saying, oh, now we understand. We just wish we could talk to our moms as adults um, now that we're moms ourselves. And it's like this whole new understanding of love when you are a mother and you understand how you feel for your child and what you would do and just how deeply you love your child. It's, it's in a way, it's a gift because now I recognize oh, that's how my mom loved me. Like she loved me that much. Like somebody felt about me the way um, that I feel about my kids. Um, and so anyways, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's, I always say to people about grief or losing someone like that. You never, you never get over it. If someone is worth loving, they're worth grieving over. There's a really, yes. there's a philosopher named Nicholas Walterstorff, who I really like, who said that, you know, if someone's yeah. worth loving, um, they're worth grieving over. And I think what you realize is you just get more used to it, right? You get used to living with it, but also um, it's amazing how at different stages of your life, you miss them in, in different ways. Right. So yeah, it's an, it's an ongoing thing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I just really appreciate, I love hearing those perspectives and um i know that resonates with um most if not if not all of uh our listeners um in one way or another so thank you so much for sharing that yeah um, thanks for giving me the, the chance i mean it's one of those things where you don't often get a chance um to talk it's interesting working here a lot of people know my story but that's like one of the deep that's a really life-defining thing for me and it's not something you just bring up over dinner usually until you're really close with someone but it's not you know the older you get, you realize too, those things that bring up those deep emotions are the things that really matter. And so it's actually, I hope that gives people also permission to talk about those, you know, those deep things, because that's, yeah. that's part of who you are and how you came to this work. Um, yeah. One other thing, I have a really, I, I'm very blessed. I have a dad who continues to be deeply involved in working in Haiti, who really picked up the legacy of what he and my mom had done and carried that forth. And I'm also really lucky because I have a dad who is really demonstrative and, and is extremely present in my life and loves me and, and, and loves my kids. So as deep, you know, I miss my mom deeply, but I just want to make it clear. Um, I have a really wonderful dad um, who's just been really present. And so that's a gift. 
it makes me appreciate um, having my dad. I think it's, in a way, losing my mom at that age allowed me to enter into a new and different season of a relationship with my dad. Um, and that that is really a gift. And I'm very grateful for that. That's a wonderful perspective, too. And um, sorry, I get a little teared up myself. No, that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Sorry. Boy, uh, just... Thank you for, <laughs> I feel honored that you, that you've um, felt, felt welcome to share that. And I really just, honestly, I do think that, um, all, that all of that will resonate with, um, not only your dad, um, yeah. and your family, but, but others as well. So I, I truly appreciate it. And I, and I, I love that kind of sharing because that's how we kind of get to know, we do get to know each other through yeah. stories. Um, and these true ones are just really help us um, understand each other better yeah. and hopefully give grace and kindness for, for all that people are going through. So, so again, thank you very much. No, my pleasure. And um, that certainly um, helps um, explain in spades your passion for Haiti. So and that and um, many other things, which we'll continue to talk about, but um, uh, thank you so much. I know just relatively recently, the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child was formalized, but- um... Yeah, the, so ACE Haiti existed since, it was 2010 or 2011, I have to think about, but around there. And then we have a donor that supports us, the Porticus organization, and Dr. Neil Boothby, who I think may have been on this podcast before. <laughs> um, was, was so wonderful. yeah, so Neil was at Columbia University at the time and Porticus was helping to support implementing partners that um, to be able to measure the work that they were doing. It was called measuring what matters to, to measure more difficult to measure um, things in education, like socio-emotional learning, you know, rather than just straight up academic scores. And so Neil and his team came to visit us in Haiti and there was just an instant there was just a real connection um, between the work that we were doing and Neil and what his team was doing. And Neil actually said, I really want to be at a place where I can be interested in research, but also in the outcomes that we're achieving for really vulnerable children. And he said, I think Notre Dame is a place where I could do that. So Neil came first as a professor. And then um, about a year after he came, uh, I think he came in 2018. And I think it was in 2019 that the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child was formed. And about a year or so after that, ACE Haiti, we had been working very closely together, but we um, moved over into the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child. So now this is a real mouthful. I'm sure communications people love us with these mouthfuls. Um, but instead of ACE Haiti, um, the, all the Haiti work that we're doing here at IEI is now under the Global Center, and it's the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child, Haiti. <laughs> Thank you. You did that very concisely for, for how many? <laughs> well, for people who know me are probably shocked that it was concise, but I tried my best for you, Audrey, because I am not known for being succinct, <laughs> but I tried. It was perfect. Thank you. What does that mean to you guys in the work that you do that it's been formalized under the Global Center? Well, it means that we've been able to build a bigger and more diverse team. And I think what we've been really working towards with the Global Center, I'll just say that for short. What yes. we've been able to do in the Global Center is to have better data on what we're doing and what we need to do and how we might be moving the needle in, in some of these school-based areas and able to understand what else communities need for children to thrive. Listeners may or may not have heard about our L3 system. It's called um, La Caille L'Eglise L'Ecole, which stands for the homeschool and church. That's actually a phrase in Creole. It's a um, like a proverb. If you're 
if you're a good parent and you're taking good care of your kids, they're going to be one of three places. They're going to be in the home, the school, or the church. And we really thought about it. Um, and we thought, you know, that is the system in Haiti because there aren't government services. There isn't a Department of Public Health or Child Services. The system that's really touching children's um, lives and has the ability to impact them and improve outcomes for them is the home, the school, and the church. And so we, it was a more labor-intensive process to try to organize, you can imagine, you know, the the priests that we're working with in Haiti, figure out what are those community needs? What are the nutritional needs of those families? How do we assess that? So I think what happened, we were, I really felt very good about the work we did in ACE Haiti. It was really important. And that is the foundation of that school-based work that showed efficacy, that's allowing us to move into these other spaces with the Global Center and to expand and go beyond just school-based while school-based is still an essential part of what we do. Thank you. Yeah. You're so passionate about what you do and for extremely excellent reasons. I want to make sure that people understand what you're doing on the ground there. I guess. Yeah. Um, and because um, I think it, it feels very big, especially when it's in the global center. And I just want to make sure people understand some of the work you do, which helps understand the passion that you have for yeah. it. Does that make yeah. sense? Yep. Our goal is to create pathways out of adversity for vulnerable children. And there's multiple ways that we approach that. Um, at a broad scale, we're working in 270 schools on early grade literacy, socio-emotional learning, and some kindergarten, pre-K, early childhood development programming that also focuses on socio-emotional learning. We have multiple donors um, that are supporting the work that we're doing. We're also trying, Haiti is a, is a really difficult place to make progress. And so we are really investing heavily and we have support from some um, donors to do that in the Northern part of Haiti in really focusing on the the L3 system, the home, the school, and the church, and really trying to come up with some innovative solutions that are sustainable that we can hopefully scale to a larger number of schools. So I would say that one thing that's important to know about our work is it's all it's focused on children and families. At this point, mostly from um, early childhood through early elementary school, working with not just the children, but with their families and their teachers and the priests and other community members who interact with them and trying to figure out how can we deepen and increase the impact of our work and we're starting to do that at a smaller scale with the goal of trying to take some of those lessons to the larger number of schools that we work with. One thing that's important to know about Haiti is that approximately 20% of Haitian schools are Catholic and only about 12% of schools in Haiti are public. So that makes the Catholic Church the single largest provider of educational services in Haiti. So I think in particular, a reason that donors are interested in working with us is because the Catholic Church has the ability to have a system-wide, you know how the Catholic Church is pretty well organized. Uh, they've got the whole, you know, every, you know, they've got the diocese, the parishes, everything is mapped out. And so there really is a system to work with, whereas the national education system is much more fragile um, and frankly, non-existent in Haiti in many ways. So I think that's why there's sort of a foothold that donors, even who are not particularly interested in religious education, are interested in funding the Catholic school network in Haiti because they know that that's an, that gives them a foothold to be able to scale programs that are working effectively. So we work at, we have some things we know that work at scale and we're continuing to do those things at scale. We have other interventions that go deeper into um, kids' lives that we're trying to incubate on a smaller level with the goal of learning what works well and then being able to scale that further. Okay. Wonderful. That's very helpful. 
Is there, or can you share an example? You say some of the things you know work at scale versus something that you're testing to see if it works. Yeah. So an example of something that we know works at scale, we have a lot of great evidence about our early grade literacy program for first and second grade students. We did a randomized controlled trial. We've done a few of them. And we know that the children who participate in in our program have statistically significantly uh, better results than children who don't participate in our program in in randomly selected schools. So that's something that we feel very confident in. If we had the funds, we would scale that to as many schools as we possibly could because we know that it works. We already have the evidence that that works. A very big issue in schools in Haiti is that there isn't government support for schools and Catholic schools have to charge tuition. Even when you go to public school in Haiti, you're still having to pay some forms of of tuition um, in terms of uniforms and materials. In addition, in public schools in Haiti, it may be quote unquote free, but the consistency of the teachers showing up because they're not getting paid regularly, right? It, it's So um, a lot of parents choose with limited resources, choose to send their kids to Catholic school because it's the very best option for them. They know that that's um, the best education their kids will be able to receive in their community. The problem is, is that parents have a hard time paying that school tuition and schools have to be able to pay their teachers. So oftentimes kids will have to drop out because they can't pay school fees and they're very small school fees. I mean, we're talking often some of the schools we work with, I mean, between 50 and a hundred dollars a year is, is the school tuition. That's the total um, tuition and families are not able to, to make those payments. So that's an issue that we're trying to figure out is, is there some type of social enterprise or some type of way that we could have a sustainable subsidy for those Catholic schools so that they could continue to operate and subsidize children who aren't able to pay full tuition. So that's that's really hard to do. That is a really hard problem to crack. But we were thinking to ourselves, well, look, we have this great literacy program and we know that it works, but kids can't afford to stay in school okay, we're reaching a lot of kids with this literacy program, but we know that there are kids who really need this program who aren't able to continue on in school because um, they aren't able to pay the tuition or the school isn't able to stay open. It's just not able to sustain itself because not enough children can pay tuition. So I would say that's an example of of, uh, the the dialectic between something that works and, and, and a way that we could make something that works even better if we could fix another problem. Great. Yeah, that's very helpful, actually. Thank you. Could I add one? Mm-hmm. I have heard, and I know this has been perhaps a hot topic um, around IEI and ACE, just that thinking about um, evaluation and research and, and just what, what amount of what we do is programmatic and what has to do with research and evaluation. And for us, with our work, particularly in Haiti, from the very beginning, I think because of the funding structure, because we were applying for these large grants to do this work, we always had to provide evidence Um, We always had to do rigorous evaluations about whether it worked or not. And I remember um, the first large randomized controlled trial we did for the um, literacy program. I remember just thinking, you know what? This, I want to do a really robust evaluation of this because if it doesn't work, I don't want to keep doing it. I, I feel like we have a responsibility. We're getting these funds. We're being entrusted um, by these donors with these funds to get outcomes. And you know what? We should be able, some of these things we should be able to measure. Like either kids are learning to read better or or they're not. Either that's improving or it's not. And so what ended up happening is that evaluation data ended up being turned into a research article that we were able to publish um, in, a, in, a, in a high quality journal, but we didn't do the evaluation because we wanted to publish the article. The article was just a way for us to share 
the learning that we had about what worked and what didn't work in Haiti. So I think for our work, I've always seen those things as very combined. I just want to know what's working. And mm -hmm. if that leads to being able to publish something and share that knowledge with others in the same space, then that's great. But um, I just have never seen um, like a um, any friction between research and programmatic work because for us, they've always been very entwined. Mm. I mean, to, to me, that makes sense. It, is the Global Center work unique in that, do you think? or I think in, in terms of research and programmatic work, I think the Global Center is maybe somewhat unique in that those things have always gone hand in hand. We haven't started doing programmatic work and then later brought in evaluation or started evaluation slash research, or we haven't started doing research. Um, we don't do very much research that evaluates someone else's programs, if that makes sense. So they've always, again, I think it has to do with the way that our funding cycles work, the way that we're supported, but we've, they've always been very intertwined. Um, and I have always just thought high quality evaluations will tell us if we should keep doing more or less of what we're doing. Like to me, the data that allows us to publish articles is data that's just helpful for me to know, is this worth investing in? We only have limited funds and we want to help kids and improve their outcomes for them. So let's do more of what works. Let's try to figure out what's working and do more of that versus not doing an evaluation and continuing to do something that isn't very effective. So to me, the evaluation has always just been integral to how we do our work. It just so happens that a good evaluation can also lead to great research. And we happen to be part of a university where doing research is important. And I also think of research as being able to share with others things that worked or didn't work. Because I know when we're thinking about doing a program in Haiti, we want to go out there and look at people who've done rigorous evaluations or research in similar contexts and learn from what they did and what worked and didn't work. So I, I we have always seen research as a, access to like a community of learning to help us improve our practice. It seems to me like a virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. um, a value, you know, you do a program, you design it based on research other people have done and shared with you to see what works. You evaluate how it works and then you share that with others and you use that to inform your own practice the next time that you do this type of work. That's a great way to put it, the virtuous cycle. So thank you very much. I think you worked with one of our colleagues, Mike Macaluso, on the first um, Alexandria Award. Um, yes. How, how was that experience? That was such a delightful experience. Mike is a brother from another mother for me, as far as I'm concerned. I just love his infectious energy. You, you can just tell. I would love to have Mike as a teacher, as a student, because it's just infectious. His joy of reading and life, like he is just a delight of a human being. But he, I actually approached Mike when I heard about the Alexandria Award and I said, heard you're putting this together. I don't know if you're looking for volunteers, but I would really love to be on your committee. I would really like to be a part of this. Um, again, this goes back. I I love to read. I I books that are meaningful. I would love to help get those into um, kids' hands. And I just, I love the idea of the Alexandria Award to take a book that promotes Catholic social teaching. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Catholic book. In fact, the inaugural book, When Stars Are Scattered, um, is not written from someone who's Catholic or a Catholic perspective, but it yeah. it just hits all the things that you would want to hit with um, Catholic social teaching. And, uh, you know, my other reason for wanting to be on that award uh, committee was I have an almost 13-year-old son, and he loves to read as well. And I love to share books with him or it's, I, I wanted to have access to books or know about books that he and I could both read and find meaning in and, and discuss. And I will tell you, Audrey, when my, my son read all the 
the inaugural candidates for the award. And when he read When Stars Are Scattered, he came up to me and said, mom, this is the best book I've ever read. I'm giving it to all my friends. He said, he said, there is no way this book can't win this award because this book, it just moved him deeply. And we had the best discussions about it. So that's a pitch. If you haven't read When Stars Are Scattered, I had never read a graphic novel before in my life. And it totally sold me. I'm just the power of what you can express when you combine the written word and those great graphics in a book. You can, you can go deeper, faster. And it was wonderful. I um, agree 100%. I read that one in a day. It's compelling and it's also um, in a graphic novel form, which resonates with me. And so you're absolutely right. They made an excellent selection and I'm so glad you were able to be part of that. Yeah, I loved it. I loved the whole experience. Just to get to talk about quality books with a group of people who love kids and love books. I mean, how much better could it get than that? I want to be in those meetings all the time. It was lovely. Yeah, that must have been your dream come true. <laughs> it really dream. was. That really was my dream come true. I mean, yeah, getting to getting to listen to Father Lou expand on the spiritual principles or practices or 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 what he liked, the connections he was making in those books was just I wonderful. I loved it. Oh, we might have to record these sessions so we can all hear about these. Yeah. You said that you weren't brought up Catholic, but you send your kids to Catholic school at St. Procopius there in Chicago in, in Pilsen. Why, why was that important for you to do? Oh my gosh, you're going to make me cry again, Audrey, because this is something I, I'm, I'm, I, talking about St. Procopius brings up so many great emotions in me. It makes me want to cry. So yes, I was not, neither my husband or I are Catholic. We're both Protestant and, but our faith is really important to us. Um, I chose St. Procopius first because I wanted to do a language immersion when my son was three, um, it was a very, it came very highly recommended by friends in the neighborhood. And I was open to the idea of a Catholic school, but I didn't know how beautiful Catholic schools were or could be until I sent my kids there. So um, again, what drew me in was the dual language immersion. And that's part of what's kept me there. But what really has kept me there is the Catholic character of the school and the community. And so my son started there when he was three in pre-K is now going into seventh grade. Uh, my daughter started there when she was three as well and is now going into first grade. And I would say that what I just absolutely adore about that school is when you walk in, you just get this sense that at this school, they love God and they love children and they take such good care of your kids. And if I were to like distill the the messages of faith that my kids get at that school, it's, you know, you are loved. Jesus loved you. Like you have been accepted and loved. How are you going to turn around and extend that um, to others? That's like the distillation of, of what I think they get there. I was just telling someone this story that my, um, my 12 year old this summer when school got out um, said, you know, mom, the place that I feel the best and the most comfortable and the most myself besides when I'm at home is at St. Procopius. He said, I just feel so good when I'm there. He said, everybody knows me. I know people. Um, Anyways, if anyone's ever, anyone in the building who's ever heard me talk about St. Procopius has heard me go on and on, but I just feel like it's this wonderful gem of a school that has this beautiful diversity of um, ethnicity and culture and that language immersion part that's just baked into the school, plus just this beautiful Catholic, um, this beautiful community of faith, um, this Catholic community. So I'm I'm such a huge fan of that school. It's been such a gift. Something tells me you've been a gift to them as well. I hope so. I hope so. No doubt. Um, Well, but thank you. It makes me want to visit St. Procopius for sure. So 
Yeah. And you know what I've, I've talked to um, some other colleagues here about how they could measure like the secret sauce of Catholic schools. Like how do you know when you walk into a school that they love kids and they love God? I don't know, but I just knew from how they treated people and all of that, I would say, and I don't know if there's been other folks experience at Catholic schools, but one of the other unexpected things that happened there is that the older kids are so nice to the younger kids. So I remember a couple, like this was a, a couple of years ago when my son was like in third or fourth grade and the eighth graders were graduating and they did like a clap out, right? It's a big deal. They clapped the eighth yeah. graders out on their last day. And I asked my son, I said, oh, I heard they did the clap out. Was it fun? He said, well, mom, I was so sad that they're leaving. And I said, really? And he said, those, they're my friends. They play Aww. basketball with me every day after school. And he knew them by name. They know him by name. Like there's yeah. just this sense to even, um, you know, for my six, my middle schooler, the coolest thing that you can be in his sixth grade class, a sixth grade boy is if the little kids love you. Like if you're nice to little kids, if you, oh if gosh. you know the pre-K kids, like there's just really the sense of like care for younger um, children among the older kids. I don't know if all Catholic schools have that, but I'm telling you, I just, I just love that. Oh my gosh. I think we, I, I hope it happens at a lot of schools, but we might have to try to figure out that secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, please. IEI Ace, come over, investigate the secret sauce of St. Procopius. I would love it. Well, you know, we have a great um, partnership with um, Katie Walter LaShawn and her crew at ENL and their dual language with Holy Cross here in South Bend and St. Procopius. That's been like just a wonderful relationship for both schools to work together. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, I love that back and forth. And um I know it's so life-giving to these folks here too, and they they love to to uh, continue that work. So, um, does everybody about- cry this much? By the way, am I? Has any? Has everybody else cried this much? And I, it's just my nature. I I'm sorry. I don't know what to do about it, but I cry happy tears and sad tears like in equal measure on a regular basis. So I apologize. I think we all. might be soul sisters because uh, <laughs> I, I do the same. Um, I try not to make my guests cry too much, but I sure appreciate when um, you or they feel comfortable enough to just, you know, talk about what's in people's hearts. I think that that's what, that's what matters. So again, thanks for giving me the space to do it. (laughs) Anytime, anytime. Tell me what's one of the most positive things you think about that relationship between the groups here and and St. Procopius. I think what's, well, first of all, there's just been a, a great influx of wonderful literacy materials for the, especially the early grades. So it's very difficult for teachers to find those Spanish language resources um, in the U.S. and especially like the level readers and and different kinds of books and different topics that will be interesting to kids at that age. So I think the literacy curriculum and the um, literacy, like the books that they've been able to provide have been huge. I think also maybe even more so than that is the the relationship of those the teachers at St. Procopius with the Holy Cross teachers here in South Bend they're dealing with the same types of situations they're they're you know um there's very few teachers who are have an immersion program model like um St. Procopius and Holy Cross so to have another teacher and say oh this is what you do. This is how you solve that problem. Or, oh, that this is what I do. And this is what works. Or I think that just that um, feeling of community that they've had um, between those teachers has been really, really huge. And to have another, like a resource teacher you can go to and ask questions and learn from has just been yeah. really, really huge. St. Procopius um, is the only dual language immersion school in the 
all the entire state of Illinois. I, oh. And I'm pretty sure that Holy Cross is the only one, um, Katie can, LaShawn can correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. the only one in Indiana. So to f- have each other, I think is really important. I love that um, idea of community. I, I hear that again and again in the folks that I talk to and in all these programs is that that they don't feel alone in some of these things, mm-hmm. that, that they do feel like a community of people who care um, and that they could reach out at any time and sort of talk and, and learn and just even be heard or listened to. Um, so um, I think that's wonderful. So that that among a million things, um, I'm sure are um, part of that great relationship you guys are having between those schools. So I'm happy for that. You, you do so much um, important, critical work in very difficult situations um, quite often, very challenging. But I, but I often ask my guests, are, are you hopeful for the work that you're doing in the space that you're in and, and moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a very optimistic person by nature. <laughs> that, like I tend to bring, I, I think I'm, I tend to be a glass half full person. And you know, the reason that I'm hopeful is because I've seen, it, it's, it's slow. It's been incremental, but I have seen progress um, in the work that we're doing in Haiti. Another thing in, in our partners, just, man, when you go into some of those communities and you see these teachers who are working so hard, they're not paid very much, but they're so committed to their communities. Or when you see priests in Haiti and some of those really rural parishes, they could have opted out. They could have gone someplace else and done something different. And they're there day in and day out, just doing this really hard work. And they're very committed to it. You sort of think to yourself, well, if they're not giving up, you know, I'm not going to give up either. Like I'm going to keep doing the very best in the small way that I can to, to help them to continue on with this great work. And I, I know the global center is is going to be around for a very long time, but but long after whatever grant cycle or or anything, I know that those communities in Haiti are going to continue on um, in the faith and continue to do this work and continue to serve their communities. So that that actually is what gives me hope is that I know they're not giving up and they're going to be there doing this work. Well, I love that hope, and um, you have our hope along with you. I just am so appreciative for all the work that you're doing and for the time that you've taken to talk to me and, and, and opening your heart to, to me and so many with your, your work in this conversation. So thank you very much. Oh, yeah, you're so okay. kind, Audrey. This was such a pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you. I, I did too. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us for Think, Pair, Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.